Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. I invite you to join me in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this evening. And we're at the point now that we're about halfway through. In fact, we are halfway through, chapter-wise, the book of Ephesians. And as such, we're going to begin a new mini-series. This one's only going to last three weeks. So I know, buckle in, you're going to be in for a long time. But uh, this one's going to be three sessions long. It's going to be followed by another mini-series, also in Ephesians, that will be about five sessions long, that will be talking about walking worthy, which is an an exhortation we're going to see in our passage here tonight, this evening. But so far, as we've been in Ephesians, we've really, although we've covered three chapters, we've really covered about two topics, big topics, themes. In uh, the first chapter and part of the second chapter, Paul really spoke about the personal and individual nature of the identity of the believer that we have in Christ Jesus. So we saw all these things that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1 of how we can be identified and we are identified with Christ. And then in the last part of chapter 2 and then verse uh, chapter 3, we saw that uh, this focus changes from the individual to the corporate. So we go from our personal identity in Christ to this creation of the masterpiece that we said is the church. It's the community of the saints. It's Christ's bride. So we've been looking at that for the past few weeks. But remember we read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It says we're not only are we saved by faith, grace through faith, but we're saved for a purpose. We're saved to do good works. And so the church isn't just gathered together because we like to hang out with one another, but we are gathered together for a common purpose. And so, therefore, we are called to continue Jesus' work of ministry that he began in the Near East. And that he passed on to primarily his 12 or 11 apostles. And that has continued globally around the world to us today. That we are called to join in that work that he has continued through the work of his spirit and the work of his people, the body. And so tonight we're going to look at this foundation for this ministry as we examine these verses. Now this passage consists of two parts, and each subsection focuses on the foundation for effective ministry. They're both talking about the same thing, but as we are going to study, we're going to look first at Uh, more of a practical, as Alan was saying earlier, more of a practical example of it, and then the theology that drives that. And that we're talking about, in both sections, unity of the church, unity of the believers. But before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity this evening to come together as your church, your gathered people, the community of Christ, 
to come together to study your word. Lord, to be touched by your spirit, to be empowered and equipped, stirred up to good works because you have opted to dwell within those who have accepted your son, Jesus, who have believed on his name and confessed him as Lord. So tonight, we, your sons and daughters, come to you asking that you would speak to us through your word, move our hearts, motivate us to ministry, and motivate us to unity. I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right, let's begin by looking, reading together Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So this first section really talks about a unitive Christ-like character. When we demonstrate the characteristics of Christ that Paul mentions here, it leads to or lends to unity among the body. And so Paul gives this exhortation to the church. He begins here with the word, therefore. And if you've been in church any length of time, you know you never start with therefore. You always look back to what the therefore is talking about. Well, we've been covering that for the last uh, little bit here, several months. So what I think as we look at this this, therefore, is not just referring back to the previous chapter. It's not just referring back to the previous few sentences. It's referring to all that we've covered so far about our identity in Christ and the masterpiece that God makes that is the creation of the church. And it's because of the salvation that's experienced by all believers, all members of the church, that Paul can call the church at Ephesus, and by extension us today, to unity. And so he gives us this exhortation to unity today. But Paul begins by giving a brief reminder. He says that I am Paul. I'm the prisoner in the Lord. Now, last time I preached was the beginning of chapter 3, where we had a very similar introduction. But Paul's phrasing is a little bit different here. There he said he was a prisoner of Jesus on behalf of them, the Gentiles. But here he says he's not... He changes the phrasing a little bit. He says, he is a prisoner in the Lord. And so, Paul here is speaking of the nature of his unity with Jesus. He says that although he's imprisoned, he sees this as a result of his lifestyle. That he has surrendered himself completely to God. And so, wherever God chooses to place him, it doesn't matter because he's fully submitted to what God has for him. And so in this case, it happens to be in prison. But as, whereas before he was showing that there was a distinction between him who was in prison on behalf of these Gentiles in Ephesus, now he's saying, I am like you. We are both equally in the Lord. And so from that, Paul calls the believers to walk worthy of their calling. Now, we're going to touch on this briefly today because the next section and the next mini-series is really going to delve deeper into this idea of walking worthy. But 
Before we can understand what it means to walk worthy, we must first understand what Paul means by this calling that they have received. This calling refers not only to the election and the predestination and the adoption that we have through the Father, but it also refers to the union into the body, that is the church. And this appeal to walk worthy presupposes that God has already graciously initiated the redemption and the union that he's talking about. But it also requires a continuous human response. Walk worthy is a command. It's an exhortation, but it's a command that says you have to do something in response to what God has already done. You've got this calling, live up to it. And so as we look at this, uh, the idea of walking, as you're probably familiar, is a common euphemism in Scripture that talks about how we live. It's our lifestyle. And so this goes all the way back to Genesis. If you're familiar with this uh, verse, what happened with Enoch? He walked with God, and then he was not. He was no more. So it's referring to the way he lived. He lived with God. He walked according to the way God commanded him to live. And what I want us to draw here is that our union with Christ should transform us. It should make us different. If you're united with Christ and you're filled with his spirit, how can you continue to live an ordinary, mundane life? How can you stoop to live a sinful life? He has given us this command, this exhortation here, and Paul doesn't make a compromise. He exhorts them. He says, walk worthy of that which you have been called. You have been called to live a holy life, to be like God, to live like Christ, so do so. But what does this idea of walking worthy mean in this context? Well, it's this exhortation to live in unity with one another in the church. Unity is the first aspect of walking worthy that we see in, this, in the book of Ephesians. Now, before we talk more specifically about unity, let's talk about the personal characteristics that Paul indicates help or uh, are natural to living in unity. First, he says that in verse 2, you should live with all humility, or your version may say lowliness. Lowliness or humility means a modest opinion of one's own abilities. This is the opposite of pride, right? Pride inflates one's ability. It inflates one's self-worth to think that you're more than what you do or more than what you can do, more than who you think you are. Humility does not mean that you're downplaying your abilities, but what it does mean is that you recognize your limitations. You recognize that you can't do everything. The other day I was speaking with one of my coworkers in the technology department over at Southwestern about this particular issue. Some people uh, have this sense of pride. They go, well, I'm techie. I, I'm good with technology, so I can figure out this problem. So they go into a classroom, and they begin working, and they, there's something not right, so they begin trying to fix it. And they do about 12 or so, a dozen things that they try to do to fix it. still doesn't fix the problem. Finally, they call and say, hey, I need some support. So then one of our techs will go over there, and we have to undo all the 12 things that they just did so we can get back to the original problem and try to figure out the problem from there. But because the people think they know technology, 
and they have this pride, well, I'm a techie, I, I, I know how to deal with technology, they actually make a bigger headache for us. And so even when I'm training a new technician, which I'm not doing anymore in my new role, but when I was, I would always tell them, if you don't know the answer, if you don't know the problem, stop and ask. Recognize you don't know, and it's better to ask somebody who does know. Don't overestimate your knowledge. Don't overestimate your abilities. Well, in the church, when we have such pride that we overestimate our abilities, it tends to provoke division. It tends to provoke, uh, well, I think I can do this better than this person. And so you begin to have this back and forth, this division that becomes uh, divisive. But humility engenders unity. When you say, well, maybe I can't do this better, then maybe there's somebody else who can do this better than I can. And you begin to look and you support one another because you go, well, I see that you can do this and I can do this. Well, maybe it's better if we just come together and do it together. And so there's a unitive aspect to humility. Next, he says that you should not only with all humility, but with gentleness or meekness. Now, that doesn't mean weakness, and I think that's one of the things that we've gotten confused on. What is meekness? It's not weakness. Rather, it's the opposite of roughness. It implies there's a conscious effort of self-control, which, by the way, is one of the gifts of the Spirit. It is a conscious choice to restrain yourself, to be gentle, to use power for its intended purpose rather than for your purpose. So, for instance... I had a friend in high school. His name was Hawk. He had, his name was John Hawk, and his brother's name was Mark Wolf. So, yes, I was from Oklahoma. Um, but he was about twice my size. I was a wide receiver. He was a lineman. Uh, but we both auditioned and were cast in the musical Oklahoma. I was Curly, and he was Judd Fry. And if you're familiar with the musical, there's a dream sequence where Judd Fry murders Curly. So I got, I've already died once. So I'm looking forward to the second death now. But in this dream sequence, Hawk, playing Judd Fry, what we decided to do was to make it look like he picked me up and strangled me to death. And so what he was able to take his hand and place it underneath my jaw and just lift me straight up. And if you watch in the video, it looks like he's strangling me to death. But he was able to, because of his gentleness, he took the power that he had and was able to gently lift me up by my jaw. And so I was, I was completely fine. No bruises, no nothing. Because he was gentle. He was a gentle giant. He had great strength, but it was under great control. Well, Paul goes on to say not only humility and gentleness, but with patience. Now, everyone knows what patience is, even if we don't have it. It's a willingness to endure under trying circumstances, under a load. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison. He's reminding the church to be patient with all your circumstances. Even if it's not what you prefer, be patient. Sometimes church members become impatient with one another, or maybe just impatient with a, a situation. You start to irritate one another, right? That doesn't happen. We want to see changes. 
We want to see something different. We want to see it happen immediately. Well, maybe not. I, I am in a Baptist church. Maybe no changes will take place. But we get impatient. I know as a leader, I look and I see something. And I go, I want to see this changed. And I want it done now. But Paul says to be patient. But here's the reality. Humility, gentleness, patience. Those words don't describe the natural human reaction. What we naturally and automatically respond to life situations with is pride, it's with roughness, a coarseness, it's with impatience. But in God, in the power of the Spirit, it, we can rely on the Holy Spirit's movement in our lives for these aspects that Paul's been writing about. But he, Paul, Paul reminds the church at Ephesus to walk in this way. But there's more than that. And he says, I want you to bear with one another. Maybe your version says forbearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? It means that it's okay to have differences. Noah was reading earlier and talking about how it's good to have differences, to have different giftings, to have different personalities. And yes, sometimes that can cause tensions. Sometimes we can have even some different theological understandings. We can have different views on eschatology, and it'd be okay. Unity does not mean uniformity. What it means is that the diversity makes us stronger. And we need people who are different than us for the body to function well. But here's the necessity that's underlining all of this. He says at the end of um, verse 2. Bearing with one another. How? In love. In love. Because here's the, here's the reality. There can be a bearing with one another that is not in love. You can grit your teeth and get through. You can walk away from that in anger and resentment. But if you do that and you you bear with one another begrudgingly, then what good does that do to our witness? How does that bring unity? But rather, if you love one another, then you will naturally bear with one another. If you love one another, you will do it willingly. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, he wrote, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Which takes us greatly into verse number 3, where it says to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now notice the key here. We are to make every effort to keep the unity. Keep the unity. Maintain the unity. This isn't an exhortation to establish unity, for establishment of unity has already been accomplished for us in Jesus. If we look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 through 16, Paul had written, For he is, at, he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create him in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body 
through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. So we've already read that passage. But here Paul's applying it in a different way. He says, we already have the peace. We need to maintain the peace, the unity in the Spirit. Since Christ is our peace, it is unnatural for us. It's counter to our Christian nature to live in ways in which we're not at peace with one another. But this is also not a call to organize unity, for that is accomplished also by God through the Spirit. See, nothing in this whole letter, in this whole epistle, suggests anything about unity being brought about by human will or by human power. Unity does not come from this bond of peace, but by the Holy Spirit who establishes this bond of peace. The key element to the unity of the body is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit's present, the members of the body are knit together in peace in the body. And because of the new position that we have in Christ, both individually and corporately, unity should exist in the church. And this unity is portrayed best here by the church at Ephesus because Paul's been talking about there was the Jews and there were the Gentiles. They hated one another, but they came together in Christ by a common unity to create a new man, a new bride of Christ. It's a separate thing that's different from either of the ones before because the power of the Spirit is in it. So Paul urged the Ephesians to maintain this unity, keep it going. So what does this mean for us? Well, we must endeavor to make what is a spiritual reality a practical reality every single day. We must submit to the Spirit, and He will work within us, He'll work within you to develop these characteristics of Christ. But then we go on to chapter, or, sorry, verse 4, where Paul gives this theological reasoning behind this. Notice this with me in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So there's a unitive common confession. The second section is a confession of faith that emphasizes the unity that believers possess. It's Paul's theological basis for his exhortation. And here he uses Greek triads, which were a rhetorical device that was used to help with memorization. Groups of three. Similarly, you know, you, when you take a cell phone number, you don't just say all the numbers together, right? You always do your area code and then the uh, next three and then that last four. It helps with the way you remember things. That's just the way the body is structured, the way the mind is structured. Well, here he uses these Greek triads to help remember this. And so it's debated whether Paul took what was already a pre-established confession and adapted it to uh, this passage and his purpose here, or whether he wrote this intending for it to be a confessional, or maybe he just thought it sounded good. We don't really know. But regardless, this common confession relies on the nature and the essence, the work of the triune God in the unity of the church. We see that there's three distinct persons 
of the Trinity that Paul's going to speak about here or that he spoke about here. But there's also this repetition of the word one. Now, in the Greek, it's a bunch of different words. But here in English, we have one word for one. And so that one word is repeated over and over. It's repeated actually seven times, which if you're familiar with some of the symbolism in Scripture, seven has a significant meaning about the perfection of God. So also, before we move on to talk deeper about this, I want you to also think about this. Each of the elements that are in these triads have already been previously discussed in this epistle. So think about that as we are reading. So the first triad focuses on the Spirit. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. So, First, Paul looks at the body. There's one body. Believers are called into one spiritual body. That is the body of Christ. And when a person believes and confesses Jesus, he or she follows with believer's baptism, which we'll talk about more here in a minute, confesses Jesus. He or she follows in believer's baptism, and that brings them into a group of believers that's called the church. And the reason Paul mentions the body first is because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the nature of the church, the unity of the church, not only for this section that we've been studying, but really for all of the book of Ephesians. That's what Paul's writing about. He's writing about the nature of the church. And so Paul sees this oneness as essential to the functioning of the church, to the nature of the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one who unifies the body, the one who breathes life into the body. If you think back to Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam, formed him out of the ground, and he was a body laying there. It's very interesting that Scripture makes it clear that he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. The man was not alive until he had the breath of God in him. Or think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel prophesied the, the bones came together, the tendons knit together, the body was formed but he wasn't alive, or they weren't alive. So God said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. And when he prophesied to the wind, the wind came and entered their bodies, and they stood up, and they were alive. The church without the Spirit is not alive. The church without the Spirit is nothing. It's dead. It's useless. The Holy Spirit unifies the body and breathes life into it. The Spirit is the animating person of the church. He brings unity to the body. He brings unity and peace and life. Paul also refers here to the one hope. This one hope is the eager expectation that God is going to outwork his plan. In other words... It's the anticipation that God's going to do what God said he's going to do. And that's what we rest on. That's what our hope rests on. That's what our faith rests on is that God prophesied through the prophets, through the word, that a Messiah was going to come, that a king from the line of David was going to come and would establish his kingdom. And when you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, you have a belief that he is who he said he was, that God accomplished what he said he was going to do through Jesus, partially, and he's going to accomplish the rest of it when Jesus comes back. 
So it's a belief that's founded on our faith. Our faith is founded on this belief, this hope, the certainty that God has redeemed the world. He has redeemed the church through Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment we talked about in chapter 1. He's the down payment that seals that hope for the day when Christ returns. He's the sealing hope that assures us of the truth of his return. Now, the second triad found in verse 5 focuses on the Son. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus is the one Lord. Now, this has been taken by some to be a, a defense or a polemic against Artemis. Remember, Artemis had a temple. Diana had a temple at Ephesus. And there was a claim that she was the one true Lord. So some claim that it's, it's against Artemis. Others claim it's a polemic against Caesar because Caesar demanded ultimate allegiance from everyone in the Roman Empire. So he claimed this kind of one Lord title. But I think what is most important here is that it identifies Jesus as the God of the Jewish scriptures. If you look back in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Shema, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one Lord who is one. There is a unity among believers as we identify that Jesus is that God. He's the God who came to us. He's the Emmanuel who came and dwelt among us. And it is by this one faith that we confess him as our Lord. We can present all the evidence in the world, all the evidence to show that Jesus is God. Jesus himself told John's disciples, look to the miracles I've performed. The greatest of those miracles was the resurrection. And as history has un unrolled, unraveled, there's been constant attack against the claim of the resurrection. Yet the evidence, if you look at the evidence, the resurrection is the only explanation that makes sense. But yet, most reject that. Most reject that. Because without faith, one cannot accept it. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. Now, we come to one baptism, and it's interesting as I was reading this to think about one baptism being a unifying element, because it seems that amongst the Christian churches, baptism is one of the greatest division points. We have divisions over the meaning of baptism. We have divisions over the mode of baptism, of who can be baptized. And that's caused not only debates and divisions, but denominations, right? Baptists, right? And so our own denomination has removed ourselves from the others in one sense because of our beliefs on baptism. Well, the question that's been raised about this is, does this refer to spirit baptism or does this refer to water baptism? And I think, I believe that question is irrelevant for the baptism is one. It is Christian baptism. The application of water 
that is applied because it's associated with the gifting of the Spirit. And we're going to talk more about that next week, the gifting of the Spirit. It is the baptism that is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one baptism. There's not multiple baptisms. So you can only be baptized once, at least one valid baptism. The Spirit is received at the confession of Christ and the belief in His name. And the water baptism is a testimony to what you believe and confess. And so while some do come to be rebaptized repeatedly, only one time is valid. And any other time, you're simply getting wet in front of everybody. But the person of the Son unifies the church as we have a common faith, we have a common baptism as we're joined to the one body. The final triad focuses on the person of the Father. And it says that he is above all, through all, and in all. Now, the term overall here uh, is debated whether this refers to uh, the Father's personal relationship with, uh, with the believer or if it's referring to the cosmic nature. But I think in the context of this passage, God as Father overall would refer to believers, although some believe it refers back to chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15 where it talks about God as being universal over all creation. But while it's true that God is sovereign over all creation, as you look and you think about this, God is not in all humanity. The only ones who God is in are those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so I think this overall, and I, I totally acknowledge I could be wrong on this point, but I believe that God being overall here is referencing his relationship to the church. That he is over the church. He is sovereign over the church. He's over each individual in the church because we've acknowledged him as our, not only the Lord, but our Lord. We're indwelled by his spirit. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here's the reality, is that if believers truly understand and acknowledge the sovereignty of God and take it seriously, then the result is unity. The result is a contentment. The result is a joy for us as believers because we acknowledge that it's God is in control. He is transcendent. He is above all. He has control of all things, but we also recognize there's an, an imminence to him. He's close to us. He has a personal relationship with each believer. And in fact, that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross, because the relationship that was established at creation was broken. And so God sent his one and only son to die to pay the penalty for that brokenness that we caused and to unify us through the power of a spirit to a relationship with him. And so he works in all believers' lives and accomplishes his purposes primarily through his people, the church. His eternal purpose is the reunification of all creation within himself, and he wants to be all in all. So an understanding of the Trinity is, is essential to Paul's exhortation. Faith is not central Baptism is not central. It's the nature of the triune God that is central. It's that that is the center and the model for unity, 
For although God is three persons, he's also one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit combine perfectly to make a powerful theological appeal to the ideal of unity in the church. So how, does this, how do we apply this? What does this really mean for us? Well, first, to preserve unity, we must, you must, we all must prioritize our identities as the church rather than viewing faith as something strictly personal. It seems so often in our individualistic American culture, it's become, well, that's my faith. That's my belief, and we've taken away the aspect of we're part of the church. We're part of a community. And so we need to start speaking more about the body of believers as the community of Christ. One of the best ways to experience this Christian community is to join a small group of some kind. Now, here at Gambrel, we have uh, our new groups that are meeting in homes, but we also have the more traditional Sunday groups that meet uh, that we call Sunday school. So joining in a a Christian community, small group, helps to uh, not only develop that connection and that relationship and that unity that we've been talking about, but it also helps, that's where I believe discipleship happens. Because when you come together in small groups, you develop closer relationships and you begin working toward one another and, and this idea of ironing, sharpening iron. You work together and encourage one another, and and are discipled in the context of relationships. And relationships are community. So you must join a community to be encouraged, to be discipled, and to become more characteristic of Christ as the Spirit works amongst that community. So as humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love increases, so does unity. But also this ideal of unity and this ideal of community, it doesn't come just out of the blue. It comes based on what we just looked at in 4 through 6. God exists in the unity of community. Three in one. There's no pride. There's no competition between the members of the Godhead. They all work together in perfect tandem to accomplish the Father's will. That's what the church should strive for. But there's more to it than just doing this for our good. Because God has given us a mission. He's given us the great commission. We need to have unity to accomplish the mission. The U.S. Marine Corps teaches that, and I'm going to quote here, it is obvious that a clear explanation and understanding of intent is absolutely essential to unity of effort. It should be a part of any mission. The church has its explanation and its intent defined by the word of God. The word tells us what we should do and how we should do it. And so we must pursue this unity of effort to make, to accomplish the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations. Now, next week, Brady's going to come and he's going to teach us about the, the works, uh, the gifts of the spirit, the, the grace gifts that we're going to look at in these, this next few verses. So you can look forward to that. But think of this unity as being the foundation on which the mission can continue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father God, we thank you for the great calling you've given to us to join with you, to be one together as your body, to work in union together and in union with you by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and draw us in closer unity, not just for our own good, not just so we can pat ourselves on the back and and say, what a good church we have, but that we would be an effective instrument, an effective tool in your hands to conquer the darkness, to go out and to, to fight against the wiles of the devil, to fight against the dark nature of this world, to win people to you, to bring them to life through your spirit and the understanding, the faith that Jesus died for us. Father, as we have this time of invitation, as we respond to you, Lord, you may be moving in various ways. You may be calling some to salvation. You may be calling some to union and community with this church. Or you may be calling some to devote themselves to the work full-time, vocationally, to call others in your church to unity, to purpose, to Christ-likeness. Lord, as we respond to you, have your way with this time of invitation. Pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.